Welcome to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that looks back at the major stories of the week. I'm Eric Douglas. Coming off a short week following the Labor Day holiday, we hit the ground running with stories about the non-confidence vote at WVU, flooding cleanup, and a hearing at the Public Service Commission. We've also shared stories about Olympic volleyball and supernova hunting, and two more installments from our Workforce series. We'll jump right into it with a couple short news stories. September is National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. Emily Rice has more from the people who staff the helplines. Suicide is a major public health concern and a leading cause of death in the U.S., according to the National Institute of Mental Health. The goal of the 988 line is to connect people in crisis with someone in their community who can point them to local resources. Rosanna Bracken is the director of the West Virginia 988 line. The, the biggest benefit, I think, is, is the availability of the line, no matter what reaches of, you know, if you've got internet, a phone, um, you're able to reach out. You don't have to have you know, a certain speed of internet. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of harming themselves or others, they can text or call 988 at any time for help. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. The faculty of West Virginia University voted Wednesday on resolutions relating to proposed cuts to programs. Chris Schultz has the story. The final vote is 797 for, 100 no, 8 invalid votes. The motion passes. With almost 8 to 1 voting in favor, the faculty of West Virginia University affirmed that they do not have confidence in President Gordon Gee's leadership. Hundreds of faculty members met in person in the Clay Theater of the Creative Arts Center in Morgantown, with hundreds more from the university's Beckley and Kaiser campuses joining online. They met to vote on the resolution of no confidence, as well as a resolution to freeze the academic transformation process that has led to proposals to cut dozens of degrees and hundreds of faculty positions from the Morgantown campus. The votes are non-binding, but librarian Jonah McAllister Erickson says that voicing their concerns to the administration is one of the faculty's only recourses. I think it says something that, you know, in a matter of days, as we see hundreds of faculty members on the middle of a day coming together to voice our collective concerns here, says that there's something fundamentally wrong happening at WVU. Later in the meeting, the resolution calling for a freeze to the academic transformation process was also approved on similar margins. Outside the theater, students protested in support of the voting faculty. Jake Huff is a journalism major. He says although his program is not directly impacted, he and other students think it's important for everyone to pay attention to what is happening. I look ahead and we have to ask, what's next? This isn't just a foreign language issue. This isn't just an upper levels math issue. This isn't just a mining engineering issue. This is a campus-wide issue. The University Board of Governors will meet twice next week, on September 14th to hear public comment on the proposed program cuts, and again September 15th to vote on the proposals. The Faculty Senate meets Monday. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. The price of a contract between the West Virginia Public Service Commission and an Arizona consulting firm more than doubled. As Curtis Tate reports, the reasons are not clear. 
On July 19th, the PSC and Critical Technologies Consulting of Mesa, Arizona, agreed to a change order that increased the cost of their contract from $288,000 to $522,000. The PSC contracted with Critical Technologies last year to review the fuel management practices of Appalachian Power at its three West Virginia power plants. WVPB obtained the change order through a Freedom of Information Act request. The document did not explain why the change was made or what additional services were provided. The consultant's report could influence the PSC's decision on whether to approve the utility's application to recover $641.7 million from electricity users in West Virginia, a potential $20 a month increase on their bills. The PSC held an evidentiary hearing on the matter this week. PSC filings concealed information about payments and services involving critical technologies. In a June filing, the PSC warned that disclosing pricing information risked increasing the cost of contracts to the agency. Patrick McGinley, a professor at the West Virginia University College of Law, said government agencies should be transparent about how they spend public funds. Contracts should be public. Invoking exemptions to open records law is not always justified, he said. They hope people go away, and usually they do. A spokeswoman for the PSC could not explain why the price of the critical technologies contract nearly doubled, nor what additional services the consulting firm provided. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. Appalachian Power is an underwriter of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. The Kanawha County Commission has allocated more money to aid flooded communities and is working with state and local officials to secure even more. Brianna Haney has the story. The commission voted Thursday to extend debris pickup to next Friday, September 15th, and allocate another $100,000 to the effort. They also approved another $50,000 for West Virginia Voluntary Organizations Active in Disaster, or VOAD, to help rebuild personal bridges that were destroyed in the flood. Commission President Kent Carper says he is hoping the county will receive support from the state. We are estimating we may end up up to about 200000 Now, we're going to go ahead right now and put in a request for reimbursement. I got several of these nice emails from the legislature, from senators, wanting to know what they could do. Well, they could pay the bill. The damage assessment process is still underway. Homes, bridges, creeks, church, fire stations, and roads were damaged during the flood. Eight homes were destroyed, and individuals and local communities are struggling to pay for the damage. Federal aid from FEMA could be on the way if the disaster qualifies for it. Kanawha County Commissioner Lance Wheeler says that they are working to submit that evidence. I've been working with the state. Uh, emergency management, they tell us that we believe these numbers are very close of uh, passing that threshold. And we're positive at this moment uh, that we will get that FEMA declaration. However, you never know how FEMA is going to operate until they do. So we are just trying to do as much as possible collecting evidence. The commission is asking residents in areas affected by the flood to continue to fill out FEMA surveys because they will help their communities qualify for aid. 167 have been collected so far. Surveys are available online by QR code, and there are paper surveys available at the VOAD Center in Quincy. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. And now we'd like to highlight a few of the future stories we shared this week. First, Nine Olympians make up the 14-player roster for the U.S. men's national volleyball team that are competing in an international tournament at the Charleston Coliseum and Convention Center this week. Caroline McGregor reports. Service! 
teams competing at the North Seca or North Central America and Caribbean Volleyball Confederation Continental Championship in Charleston will receive points toward their world rankings. That helps determine who qualifies for the 2024 Olympic Games. The US men, ranked number one in the region and number two in the world, are hosting teams from Canada, Cuba, the Dominican Republic, Mexico, Puerto Rico and Suriname. Micah Ma plays offense for the US men's team, who play Cuba on Thursday night. Both teams are considered top contenders for the Olympics. Cuba is one of the most physical teams in the world, um, and we can, we can be just as physical at times. So uh, for whatever reason that is, that, that's what would be really exciting for people here, is to see the physicality, the speed, and uh, how strong the athletes are. The U.S. men's team will use the tournament to prepare for the road to the Paris Olympic qualifying tournament on September 30th through October 8th in Tokyo, Japan. Ma says each game counts toward the team's chances to reach the Olympics. They've changed the Olympic um, qualification to, to a system where um, every match matters um, that the national team plays. So where, whatever competition you are in, um, whether you win or lose will have an effect and points will be added or taken away from your total point count. The U.S. men have won the regional title nine times, most recently in 2017. In 2021, the U.S. men finished fifth. The sport continues to draw enthusiasts from around the U.S. and the world. It's definitely a growing sport. I think we're really proud of the growth that it's had, both on the men's side and the women's side. And so I think the future is looking really promising, and hopefully yeah, we get some people in the, uh, in the crowd to follow along and hopefully inspire them to join the sport if they're already in it. If they're not, then hopefully they could be motivated to join. President and CEO of USA Volleyball, Jamie Davis, said while their team is ranked number two, there are several teams that have shown great promise. There's several strong teams that are here, but certainly the Cubans are very good. We're ranked number two in the world right now. But there's a lot of teams that are also from all over the world that are also going to be big contenders for the Olympics. So the Italians are very good. The Japanese, believe it or not, are very good. The Brazilians are very good. The French are very good. Uh, the Russians, whether they get to compete or not, are very good. And so there's a lot of teams out there, but uh, certainly the Cubans are a very, very formidable team. Davis says while they want young athletes to avoid burnout by specializing in a sport at a young age, he attributes the strength of the U.S. men's volleyball team to early recruitment efforts. I think that part of the recipe to success of what we do is a couple things. One is we have what we call our national team development program. So at an early age, at age 11, 12, and 13, we have scouts where we start identifying them through the junior clubs and junior tournaments that we throw, potential athletes, if you will. And we invite them to training camps to be able to help them develop their skills with the hope that at some point they're going to be able to put USA on their back and be able to represent our country. On Thursday night at 7.30, the U.S. men's team will go head-to-head -head with Cuba. For more information on the Norseca schedule, visit wvpublic.org. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Caroline McGregor in Charleston. As the new school year begins, West Virginia continues to struggle with certified teacher vacancies but educational leaders are working to change that. Our radio series, Help Wanted, Understanding West Virginia's Labor Force, continues as Chris Schultz looks at what is being done to address the staffing issues. Caitlin Nelson knew from a very young age that she wanted to be a teacher. 
I knew as a ninth grader that I wanted to be a special educator. Now, she's living that reality as a K-5 through autism teacher in Raleigh County. But looking around at the changes the state has made in recent years to help people become educators, Nelson can't help but wish her path had been laid out as smoothly. As a teacher that has student loan debt, I would have loved to have the opportunity to not have to worry about debt and do what I love. Facing a teacher shortage that was only exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, West Virginia has begun implementing several changes to get more certified teachers into classrooms. Earlier this year, House Bill 3035 created the Third Grade Success Act, which will bring paraprofessionals into first grade classrooms this fall. A paraprofessional is a teaching-related position within a school responsible for concentrated assistance for students. Under the Third Grade Success Act, these educators will try to address reading and math skills early on. Literacy and numeracy professionals will also be added to second and third grade classrooms in the coming years. But in a work pool spread so thin, the new paraprofessional positions have already started to draw existing teachers away from special education. It is really discouraging as a special ed education teacher to see like people don't really have the desire for special education. And I think if I need a sub, somebody has to cover for me. I hardly ever get a sub unless I'm personally friends with them. It's not something people just pick up on the hotline. Paraprofessionals will play an important role in the state's educational future, but teachers continue to be the backbone of the system. And despite alternative pathways, many still get into teaching through a traditional university program. Teresa Eagle is the dean of the School of Education at Marshall University. She says today's recruitment problem is nothing new. Enrollment in educator preparation programs, which is what we call teacher ed, across the country has been down drastically, not just recently, but for the last 10 to 15 years. Eagle says enrollment is starting to trend back up, but still not where it needs to be. In the last few years, she has noticed a change in her students. They're as passionate as ever, but more and more candidates are moving away from the profession. In the past, Eagle says education was almost a family business, with children following their parents into the profession. These days, however, people are more likely to steer their children away from teaching. But the state is trying to make it easier than ever for those who took a detour from education to get certified and into a classroom. Passed in 2021, Senate Bill 14 created alternative pathways to allow people who already have a bachelor's degree to receive a professional teaching certificate. What I'm seeing is people in that program are people who knew they wanted to teach, but they allowed parents, family, whatever, to guide them in a different direction. And now they've decided, that's really what I wanted to do in the first place, so now I'm going to come back and do that. Autumn Cipre is the Dean of West Virginia University's College of Applied Human Sciences. She recognizes the pressing need for alternatives, but urges caution as well as respect for the teaching profession. Just because you went to school doesn't mean that you understand or are going to be good at being a teacher. Cipre says the demands being made of teachers are not new, but rather are now more formalized, which allow programs like the one at WVU to better prepare teachers for the needs and demands of modern students. Education is a profession. It is one that is not paid enough, in my view. But throwing more money at education isn't going to be the answer. Thinking more deeply about the nuances of education and where the purpose of school bleeds into very deep societal issues in our democracy of equity, of health care access, of social supports, all of that feeds into the challenges that a teacher needs to face. 
She says part of the issue facing education is how to help someone understand their level of commitment to the profession. Cipre believes one way is to talk to people who are starting to realize they might like education. That's exactly what Carla Warren has been working to do. Warren is the Officer of Academic Support and Educator Development for the West Virginia Department of Education. She is overseeing the launch of the state's Grow Your Own initiative, which gives high school students a fast track into the education field through a combination of dual enrollment and advanced placement courses and an accelerated pathway to a degree. We are entering this first year of full implementation, carrying about 177 students over from the pilot year with several students graduate, and we will begin building from there. On top of getting students to commit to the teaching profession early, Warren is taking advantage of the recent action of the U.S. Department of Labor to recognize teaching as a registered apprenticeship. When we started, West Virginia was the second state uh, behind Tennessee to register the teaching occupation as a registered apprenticeship, but it provides us the opportunity to access um, workforce dollars that we can use to reach that vision of removing those barriers of cost and providing those wraparound services for our students. While Grow Your Own is an ambitious solution, it will take at least three years to pay out in any meaningful way. Warren says that in the short term, the state is looking at paraprofessionals to fill the gaps. They want to be a part of that community, and so we feel like that really is a population that is ripe for the picking to create some very high-quality teachers. The potential payoff for Grow Your Own and the Third Grade Success Act is years away. But Dean Eagle renews her hope for the future of teaching each May when her students graduate. I watch the students cross the stage and try to pick out the ones that I am the proudest of, the ones that I know will go out and do a fabulous job and represent us well, be critical change makers in their schools and for their students. So far, every year, I've been able to identify quite a few students like that. And so that's where I get my positive outlook, that as long as we keep finding these people and putting them out there, it's good for the future, it's good for kids. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. You can listen to the entire Help Wanted series on our website at wvpublic.org. Recent federal legislation has sent tens of millions of dollars to West Virginia to build and repair a variety of infrastructure from bridges to broadband. That's created a new challenge, finding enough workers who have the right skills for the job. As part of the series Help Wanted, Understanding West Virginia's Labor Force, Curtis Tate spoke to people with federal and state perspectives on the issue. Thank you for everything. Thanks for all your uh, time. U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg got a friendly reception from residents in Wheeling recently. He was there to promote the Biden administration's infrastructure law enacted by Congress and signed by the president in 2021. The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, along with the Inflation Reduction Act of last year and other programs are bringing a lot of federal dollars to places like Wheeling. The city is using a $16 million grant from the infrastructure law to improve its main street. While the construction work was underway outside, Buttigieg spoke at a restaurant downtown. This infrastructure bill is, is so big in its proportions, it's really testing the capacity of the United States. And that's true on everything from raw materials to workforce. After years of disinvestment, federal funds are coming to Appalachia. The goal, say people familiar with Appalachia's strengths and needs, isn't simply to put people to work on jobs that have an expiration date, 
Rather, it's to build skills that last a whole career. So they can hop from client to client to client and keep, you know, keep a continuous pipeline and flow of projects to where they can continuously employ and maintain their, their organization and grow exponentially. That's Jacob Hanna, Chief Conservation Officer for Coalfield Development in Huntington. His organization trains solar workers, often former coal miners. He expects the influx of federal dollars will create even more opportunities in solar in the region. Some of those solar projects could be built on mine sites reclaimed with newly available federal dollars, including one in Hanna's native Mingo County. It will provide 100% of the power the local high school needs. So we're trying to help catch up the workforce to meet the demand of the solar companies that are meeting the demand of this big funding opportunity that's happening. Gail Manchin, the federal co-chair of the Appalachian Regional Commission, says the infrastructure law has brought a wealth of new opportunity for the state and region. Sometimes it only takes a little bit of retraining to build a workforce that's ready for new jobs that are coming to Appalachia, she says, whether it's aerospace or power plants fueled by hydrogen. Hub, where they're talking about coming in with hydrogen uh, plants, they say that if you worked in a coal-fired uh, plant, then you would be able to work in a hydrogen plant. Skill sets are almost identical. And from a regional perspective, Manchin says it's okay for surrounding states to benefit from businesses expanding in West Virginia. Whether it's the Nucor Steel Plant in Mason County or the Form Energy Battery Factory in Hancock County, the new plants in West Virginia may need workers from Kentucky, Ohio, or Pennsylvania. That's just my personal belief that uh, it can't just be a West Virginia project. It can't just be West Virginia work. But some observers are concerned that the workforce may not be ready and the jobs may not sustain the people who need them the most. Joseph Kane, a fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington who focuses on infrastructure's economic role across different regions, says states may be tempted to put the cart before the horse when there's a window of federal funding available. We have this, this like gold rush mentality <laughs> nationally where places are just like tripping over themselves, trying to like get to the buckets of federal money while they can. For example, Kane says a local water utility might have five workers and two or three are eligible to retire. Or they might seek higher paying jobs in other states. Losing 40% to 60% of your workforce at a time when federal money is flowing into water infrastructure isn't ideal, he says. Kane says states need to create a pipeline of skilled trades to do the work over the coming decades. That could be for initial construction or ongoing operations and maintenance. We need to create a talent pipeline, right? Like we, we like the the need is to have a bigger pool of talent in general, even over the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years that like all these employers can pull from. If the talent pool is too small, states risk competing with each other for a scarce resource. We're going to compete against each other for those few people. <laughs> And then it's kind of like a race to the bottom where we can't find people to do the work. It's not just boots on the ground, Kane says. Some communities don't have the people they need to write the grants to get the competitive funds in the first place. They're sitting on over $100 billion <laughs> in competitive grants that they can award places. And the, the concerns I've heard from places is not even do they have um, the staff to do these projects. They don't even have the grant writers um, to get those competitive grants or to apply for them. Manchin says you can't just throw money at a city or county government and expect them to know what to do with it. I think money just passed out without any uh, structure or guidance can, can sometimes not be a blessing at all, but 
uh, be a hardship. That's part of the Appalachian Regional Commission's modern mission. The agency was conceived by President Lyndon B. Johnson's White House as a federal anti-poverty program. In the past, the ARC focused on hard infrastructure, such as a 3,000-mile network of improved highways in the region. In more recent years, the ARC has turned its focus to human infrastructure, education, training, workforce development, and entrepreneurship. Kane says it won't be enough to say you spend a certain amount of money to create a certain number of jobs. A true return on investment would be a build-out of durable skills that workers can use until they retire. Maybe people will get some jobs, but but maybe the bigger point is the fact that they're getting licenses and, and certifications that and skills that allow them to do other sort of work once that construction project ends. Like, like, and I haven't gotten a clear answer to that, which is concerning, right? Because the, the money's already going out there. Hannah says big one-time projects can still deliver benefits to a region that's been in distress. So, you know, those, those one-off projects, they're valuable, they're beneficial, they're not permanent long-term, but they help sort of Get a get a shot in the arm, a jump start, you know, for for a community in the region. And then what we want to do is be able to place those folks into other opportunities that may be more long term and long lasting. Hannah says he's optimistic about the federal funds that are available from several agencies, and that the federal government is making coal communities a priority for the investment. Um, and I think right now we're in a very exciting time because the government is willing to invest in that experimentation period. Hannah's organization helped grow Solar Holler into the biggest solar installer in the region. Ten years ago, there, there wasn't even a solar installation company in our region. Now there are six or seven solar companies in the region, Hannah says. Still, Hannah says it's a stretch to transform the workforce in just 10 years when the economy has been based on a single extractive industry, coal, for more than a century. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Wheeling. Their life cycle is in the millions of years, but stars in the Milky Way grow, produce heat and light, and then they die. Some burn out in a spectacular supernova. Lauren Anderson, a professor at the Eberly College of Arts and Sciences at West Virginia University, is studying the remnants of those explosions to better understand the properties and dynamics of our galaxy. I spoke with him to learn more. What is a supernova? So stars create energy via a process we know as fusion, where hydrogen atoms are combined into helium atoms. That's the primary way. Um, however, that process uses up the hydrogen in the stars, and eventually the stars run out. And at the end of their lifetimes, they kind of go on a frantic search for new ways to generate energy, but eventually those methods run out. And what happens is during fusion, they kind of blow up, you know, the pressure from the generation of energy makes the star its present size. And then without that pressure, they collapse in and that collapse creates a rebound that leads to a supernova. So, so literally they explode, implode, and then explode bigger again. Without that initial explosion, what you said is correct. So it's like generating energy, it's stable, it's producing the heat and the light that we need, but it's gonna run out and skipping some of the very fast evolutionary steps, then it goes. All like right. Okay. Um, the sun will go through a different uh, evolutionary path, however. So it's only the most, most massive stars that do that explosion. 
we know of about three or 400 of these supernovas that, that have happened, mm -hmm. but, but statistically from your research, we should know there should be about a thousand of them. So why, yeah. A, why do you think there's two and a half times more than we know of? And mm -hmm. B, why don't we know about them? Why can't we find them? Those numbers are only for our own galaxy. Okay. We have hundreds, maybe thousands more that we've seen in other galaxies. But within the Milky Way, um, first of all, the supernova remnants, which after the explosion, there's still some embers glowing. And it's the that we call those those glowing embers supernova remnants, but they only last a pretty short amount of time. And so because they don't last very long, a supernova will go off and then it will relatively quickly become undetectable. Right. And that's what leads to the relatively low numbers. Um, so they're kind of hard to find. However, the the fact that there's many multiples more that should be discoverable comes from studies of other galaxies and comes from studying the population of stars that are in our galaxy that should explode to produce these things. So that's the basis, though, of your re research. You're, exactly. you're hoping to find these additional remnants of, of additional supernovas. Why is yeah. that important? Um, it's important just for understanding the type of galaxy that we live in. By mapping out all of these, we can learn about the massive star history of our galaxy over the last tens of thousands of years. We can put our galaxy in context of other galaxies in the universe. And also there's a lot of interesting physics, none of which I do, but there's a lot of interesting physics of studying individual supernova remnants and understanding how that explosion progresses in time and its interaction with the environment. And you, you're also doing some uh, STEM training too. We have this uh, outreach program called SPOT. And in SPOT, the program trains what are called ambassadors, so college undergraduates, to give science lectures to the public and to high school students as a way of just training the ambassadors in public speaking and in science communication and also in engaging the next generation of scientists. So what we're going to be doing is my other collaborator on this project, Catherine Williamson, will be developing a new spot module focused on supernova remnants. So this will be a talk that the ambassadors can give to their audiences on supernova remnants. That was WVU professor Lorne Anderson talking about his research studying supernova remnants. To read a longer version of this interview, visit our website at wvpublic.org. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm Eric Douglas.